For Ubal Sathla is the source and the end. Before the coming of Zothakwa or Yok Sothoth or Cthulhu from the stars, Ubal Sathla dwelt in the steaming fens of the new made earth, a mass without head or members, spawning the grey, formless Fs of the prime and the grisly prototypes of terrene life. And all earthly life, it is told, shall go back at last through the great circle of time to Ubo Sothlo. The Book of Ibon. I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god or devil, ominous and gibbous, and the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel The wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves. It is verily known by few, there were people, but it's mostly priests and women, it is told, whom he picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The Double Shadow, Clark Ashton Smith Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And we've just heard a bit of it, but this week we'll be covering Ubo Sathla. And we heard a bit of the inscription that starts the story off, read by Jordan Smith back again. So that inscription we just heard from the Book of Ibon is the first time that it has been mentioned and uh, quoted in Clark Ashton Smith's tales. Now, we've already met Ibon previously in our episode, The Door to Saturn, but and we'd met him, of course, in reference in our Averon stories. However, based on a letter from uh, 1937 to August Derleth, this is the first time that he decided to bring in um, the Book of Ibon, and then he brought it in indirectly in the Beast of Averon. He mentioned Ibon, and the Beast of Averon was actually published first, but this one was written first. Also, I don't think the book was mentioned, just the ring of Ibon. Yeah, I think it's just the ring in, in Beast of Averon. So Ubisathla first appeared in the July 1933 issue of Weird Tales, which was, I think by any measure, an awesome issue of Weird Tales. Uh, it had in it Dreams in the Witch House, uh, the Horror in the Museum, uh, part of a Jack Williamson story, a short story by Robert E. Howard, and then a number of poems, each of which I think sounds amazing, including The Dance of the Dead, The Pirate's Cave, and Voodoo Song. <laughs> That's awesome. And it even has, I mean, it's a steamy cover by Margaret Bondage, like literally it has steam on it, but it also <laughs> is like, you know, a typically uh, salacious Margaret Brundage painted cover. Yeah, so seriously. I think in, in the quest for ultimate issues of Weird Tales, this is a, a very strong contender. <laughs> And yeah, I, that's all I have to say about it. It's just <laughs> awesome. I want to hold it in my hand and rub my face on it. Yeah, it's great. There's like a fully naked lady with just little wisps of steam covering her. Covering the nipples. Yep. I like I like that, that that concept of like the conspicuously placed bit of uh, artwork to cover the, the, the mo- most minute necessary part yeah. of the <laughs> sexual organ is, is <laughs> goes all the way back. It probably goes back, you know. Back to when I started putting leaves on on right. statues, but I like that it was alive and well in, in Margaret Brundage's <laughs> wheelhouse of like how to make it just yeah. sexy enough. And that woman must have the smallest nipples ever in the world <laughs> for those little wisps it's of steam true. to be covering them. I think that Michael Bukowski has really opened the door to us just making this podcast really bawdy. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> thanks, Mike. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> I don't know what is the what is the what is the story that she's illustrating. I didn't even look. I was so caught up staring at those with the steam. I didn't even look at what the. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if it matters. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna actually go look. Oh my god, you're right. Right. Wow. She's sitting on like a slab with roses. Nope, doesn't say what story or yeah. anything that is. It's probably not even a story. Like, does it, I know. Did it even matter? It's it's probably actually Ubosathla. She was just like, <laughs> it's probably got a sexy woman in it and and some dude and handmaidens with with. And it's like it's like vaguely Middle Eastern looking, right? Isn't doesn't he yeah. look like a sheik or yeah. something? Now I have also another excerpt from one of Smith's letters because he wrote a fair amount of actually interesting stuff. Other than hey, I just finished this. I've mailed it to Wright. Which spoiler alert. Wright didn't take it at first. He took it again, but he didn't take it the first time. In which, in a letter to Donald Wandre, he says, I'm sending a new fantasy of my own, Ubo Safla, whose ideation may remind you a little of your own tale, Alfred Kramer. The main object of Ubo Safla was to achieve a profound and manifold dissolution of what is known as reality, which, come to think of it, is the animus of nearly all my tales, more or less. This, interestingly enough, is the quote that I referenced last time. This is the quote that I was going to read in the very first episode of The Double Shadow uh, as being uh, emblematic of Clark Ashton Smith's project as a writer. And I couldn't, fi- and I couldn't find it way back, way back then, but yeah, this is, that's, that's the quote. That's the same quote that you, you teased last time? Yep, that is the quote. Wow, yeah. That is the... I mean, it's true, yeah. Yeah. That's his, his mission statement as a writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nothing is real. Statement. <laughs> and I'm going to tear it all down <laughs> with my language. <laughs> and that's the proper pronunciation, by yes. the way. <laughs> I'm trying to think. This makes me actually think of another tale which involves an artist and some ghouls in a book. And it's one of his more modern ones. Oh, really? I don't know if I've read that one. Oh, well. I'll, I'll maybe figure out what it is, but we can get started. Paul Tregardis found the Milky Crystal in a litter of oddments from many lands and eras. He had entered the shop of the curio dealer through an aimless impulse with no particular object in mind other than the idle distraction of eyeing and fingering a miscellany of far-gathered things. Looking desultorily about, his attention had been drawn by a dull glimmering on one of the tables, and he had extricated the queer orb-like stone from its shadowy, crowded position between an ugly little Aztec idol, the fossil egg of a Dinornis, and an obscene fetish of black wood from the Niger. The thing was about the size of a small orange, and was slightly flattened at the ends, like a planet at its poles. It puzzled Tregardis, for it was not like an ordinary crystal, being cloudy and changeable, with an intermittent glowing in its heart as if it were alternately illumined and darkened from within. Holding it to the wintry window, he studied it for a while, without being able to determine the secret of this singular and regular alternation. His puzzlement was soon complicated by a dawning sense of vague and irrecognizable familiarity, as if he had seen the thing before, under circumstances that were now wholly forgotten. So we got this guy, Paul Tregardis. I love that last name, Tregardis. Yeah. And this is a contemporary tale. This starts, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. in the, the 30s. So he finds this glowing gem in a curio shop, and it's enchanting to him. <laughs> now, is Paul Tregardis just any old dude in a, in a shop? Well, no, because he happens to own a copy of the Book of Ibon, for example, a manuscript of the Book of Ibon. 
Honestly, I, I didn't get an entirely good picture of what all he does. <laughs> he seems to be an antiquarian. Yeah, they, he says later. Oh, amateur of anthropology and occult sciences. That's what it was. Yeah, so an- antiquarian, basically. <laughs> That's exactly what it says on his business card. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Trigardis, amateur of anthropology and the occult sciences. Latter day London. Me, look for me everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, he has a copy of the Book of Ibon at home, sitting on his shelf. Like and when they do. describe it, it has an awesome, there's a little Averonian shout out because it, it is a, uh, he has a medieval French version yeah. of the Book of Ibon, mm-hmm. which probably belongs to one of our necromancers who we met way, way back in that other setting that we don't even want to talk about anymore. <laughs> or maybe even a, a art loving uh, archbishop. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Maybe he is. What was the name of my favorite? Uh, Ambrose? The one, who, like, the one who was in a story that's pretty crummy, and he like maybe dies or maybe just goes into the future. <laughs> what was his name? Oh, he killed us. Wait, is Zedarak? Yes. yes. Maybe Tregardus is Zedarak. Yes. I'm just going to drop that there. Let's Did you just on. say Zedarak was a crummy story? Because if oh, we go burn. back and listen to the episode, there were two people on this podcast who loved that story. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it... I, uh, okay, maybe... I mean, we're not here to discuss his editor. That's true. I think You're my, right. My opinion is on the record, I think, <laughs> I think. <laughs> along with my specific complaints. <laughs> but he has it, and it's, it sounds like an awesome copy. It's been owned by many generations of sorcerers and Satanists. Yes. yes. And he also has Necronomicon. He does. Nice little shout out to our buddy Lovecraft. Does he have it, or he, he just, he was able to, he had collated, he collated the French it. version with the frightful Necronomicon. I wonder if he owns it, though. Nerd! Good question. <laughs> yeah, seriously, this guy's an occult yeah. nerd. He feels uh, he feels very um, like a very sort of Lovecraftian protagonist. Yeah, he really does more than uh, more than a Clark Ashton Smithy one. But yeah. he kind of becomes our Clark Ashton Smithonian eventually. Right. Yeah, this kind of feels like Smith writing like a Lovecraft story. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that yeah. when I read it. But what I think is different is in Lovecraft, he just would have gone completely insane and stuff. And because it's Smith, it's um, it's a little bit different. It tears down the walls of reality. <laughs> <laughs> so he finds this gem. He finds a gem and it, rem- it reminds him of something that he's right. read. Something in someone that he's read about in both... It's in both the Necronomicon and in the Book of Ibon, right. right? Yeah, I think so. He he recalls that there was a, a cloudy crystal that had been owned by the wizard Zon Mezamalek, which is also an awesome name. <laughs> of Muthulam. That's a name with three Zs, by the yeah. way, if you're keeping track. <laughs> Zon Mezalamek uh, of Muthulam. And it was said, what, is, what does he think that it does when he first hears about it? Well, the, the shopkeeper tells him... <laughs> I actually really like this part when the shopkeeper like shrugs indescribably, mm-hmm. however that works, and then <laughs> says, I cannot tell you much. A geologist found it in Greenland beneath glacial ice in the Miocene strata. It may have belonged to some sorcerer of primeval fool. No doubt it is a magic crystal, and a man might behold strange visions in its heart if he looked long enough. So I think this guy knows enough about it. <laughs> Here's I just want I want to register a complaint not with the story, yes, but with the real world. Because okay. when I go into antique shops, a I never find anything this cool, and b the people behind the counter never know anything about anything. They're always <laughs> just trying to sell like crummy china. Or, like, antique chairs that are, like, $800 or whatever. They're never trying to sell mystical jewels. It was found by somebody in Greenland. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Ended up in my shop. 
Maybe I'm going into the wrong antique stores. But, I think uh, you are. Yeah, apparently. You need to find one that's run by somebody who gets lost to commercial considerations in some web of Kabbalistic reverie. <laughs> this Seeing the crystal reminds him of something that he's read. So he he buys it. And then he runs home instead of leisurely sauntering home like he planned on doing <laughs> earlier. And then he finds the passage about uh, Zan Mezamalek, who once owned the crystal. Yes, and so, so what, it is, what it says in the Book of Ibon is that Zan Mezalamek, Mezamalek, yeah, <laughs> uh, had, <laughs> had this stone, and in it he could behold visions of the Terrene past, even to the Earth's beginning, when Uba Safla, the unbegotten source, uh, lay vast and swollen and yeasty amid the vaporing slime. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, yeasty is a great. I don't. It's I, a terrible I, word, but it also works for this because it's like it's like dough rising. Yeah, which I love. Yeah, I mean, it, it really grounds that vision in something uh, kind of tangible. Yeah, but that also it says in there that 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 Mesolamek never really left any record of what he saw right. in the crystal, and then he vanished. Just, yeah, well, what happened to him? Nobody. Nobody knows. knows. And the cloudy crystal was completely lost, yeah. I guess, until this guy found it. What's he going to do with it? Well. Minute by minute, he sat and watched the alternate glimmering and fading of the mysterious light in the heart of the crystal. By imperceptible degrees, there stole upon him a sense of dreamlike duality, both in respect to his person and his surroundings. He was still Paul Tregardis, and yet he was someone else. The room was his London apartment, and a chamber in some foreign but well-known place, and in both milieus he peered steadfastly into the same crystal. After an interim, without surprise on the part of Tregardus, the process of re-identification became complete. He knew that he was Zon Mezamalek, a sorcerer of Muthulan and a student of all lore interior to his own epic. Wise with dreadful secrets that were not known to Paul Tregardus, amateur of anthropology and the occult sciences in latter-day London, he sought by means of the Milky Crystal to attain an even older and more fearful knowledge. Dun, dun, dun. So, I would like to know who added the note, this story is so Philip K. Dick, because I've been reading a lot of Philip K. Dick this week and I'm not sure. Uh, I, well, I don't necessarily mean his stories. I mean his life, right? Because, oh, okay, yeah. You know, he has that moment when he's like, I'm not actually Philip K. Dick. Right. I'm actually a an apostle, and it's actually Roman times, and he's, like, existing in two time periods at the same time. Uh, so, I, yeah, I didn't so much mean it's like his stories as it's like that weird... Overlay of reality. <laughs> ...of his life, yeah. where he's like, I don't know what's going oh, on. The empire never ended. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all yeah, that, that I'll buy. <laughs> Well, I don't want to laugh at him because I, I, I worry about the poor man's... Well, I mean, he's dead, but, you know. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. I him love yeah, his stories, and, and, and it makes me sad that he had that break with reality. Well, he was... He, yeah, don't be sad. He, he, was he made it work for himself. It's, yeah, and he wrote some, some fantastic stuff. So so what is Zahn up to in his, um, in his tower of sorcery? And actually, I don't know if it's really a... Tower, I think but... we could probably assume that he lives in a tower. <laughs> it's either a tower, it's either like up way high or under the ground. It's, I don't, true. it's one of the two. And he is seeking after the wisdom of gods, the wisdom of the gods who died before the earth was born. They had passed into the lightless void, leaving their lore inscribed upon tablets of ultra stellar stone. 
and the tablets were guarded in the primal mire by a formless, idiotic demiurge, Ubosatla. Only by means of the crystal could he hope to find and read the tablets. So I love that he's he's got a specific archival quest. Yeah. And Ubosathla is like the Ur archivist. I've got I've got a little narrative that I've worked out for my own <laughs> career here. That's but I awesome. love it. He's he needs primary source material. Yeah. And this is the primary source material. Yeah, this is the only way to get it is to stare into the crystal and be pulled back through time so you could read the tablets that Ubosathla is guarding. Ultrastellar yeah. tablets. <laughs> and then Paul Trigardis starts being pulled along with Zahn through time, backward, backward, backward. But he's, he's no longer Paul Trigardis, right? No. He literally is he Zahn is, yeah. at this yeah. point. Yeah, it's, like it's like a funnel almost. Like it funnels from Trigardis' time into Zahn Mezamelech. And then it exists then. There's no future. And then Zahn Mezamelech keeps freaking out as he goes further into the past and he keeps pulling himself back. And then whenever he pulls himself back, it shoots back to Paul Trigardis. So it's like this weird, like weird shifting of realities where each, each time you go back, that's where you are. And then mm -hmm. you go back more and that's where you are. Well, I want to look at the passage where he wakes up. Like how, cause what's weird about it to me is like, like what is the agency by which one wakes up? Cause like not to give it away, but at the end of the story, of course he, they actually like go all the way. Right. And yeah. have this vision quest. Mm -hmm. But like, how is he, I'm trying to find the language of like how it's he wakes by degrees. Up just... It seems to narrow into a dingier place, and then by a weird regression. Yeah. Wait. Let me see. There's a. Okay. Yeah. It says like one who has nearly fallen from a precipice. He caught himself with a violent start and drew oh, back yeah. from the mystic right. orb. So it's like there. It feels like there's almost this event horizon esque place where like if you cross over that line, then right. you're going all the way, and he. He like can't bring himself to do it, right? right? Yeah, because mm -hmm. he even says later on, it was the day when Zan Mezamelech, boldly disregarding certain evils and portentous warnings, resolved to overcome his curious fear of falling bodily into the visionary world that he beheld. So it's like, yeah, yeah. it's like falling into a, a new reality. So yeah, he can't he can't bring himself to do it, and he slowly turns back into, I guess, I think we can understand to be back into Zan Mezamelech, and then also. Back into Paul. Even to mm -hmm. be yeah. And yet not wholly, it seemed, was he able to return. Trigardis, dazed and wondering, found himself before the writing table on which he had set the oblate sphere. He felt the confusion of one who has dreamt and has not yet fully wakened from the dream. The room puzzled him vaguely, as if something were wrong with its size and furnishings and his remembrance of purchasing the crystal from a curio dealer was oddly and discrepantly mingled with an impression that he had acquired it in a very different manner. He felt that something very strange had happened to him when he peered into the crystal, but just what it was he could not seem to recollect. It had left him in the sort of psychic muddlement that follows a debauch of hashish. He assured himself that he was Paul Trigardis, that he lived on a certain street in London, that the year was 1932. But such commonplace varieties had somehow lost their meaning and their validity, and everything about him was shadow-like and insubstantial. The very walls seemed to waver like smoke. The people in the streets were phantoms of phantoms, and he himself was a lost shadow, a wandering echo of something long forgot.
It's very cool. That's rough. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. So he's like losing his sense of reality. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I sometimes get this with dreams, just a small amount. You know, like you wake up and you still find yourself identified with the person that you yeah, were in your dream state. Right. But for him, he's not pulling the rest of the way out of it. I feel like there's scary. one uh, element to this story that is not present, but it, and I'm not even sure how you would include it. If anybody who stares into this crystal becomes anybody who stared at it in right. the past, yeah, I have it would that be awesome if too. there was. It would be awesome if there was some sense that that not only was he now Zon Mesolamek, that that there was also a number, if not an infinity of people in the future who also looked into the crystal oh, that yeah. were now also oh, him that's and true. everybody else uh-huh. too. Which would be really cool. I don't really know how you would capture that in the story because really the crystal only works. One way. In this one story, way, one way. Of. In but, this story, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, it stands to reason. Well, once we get to the end, we'll, yeah. we'll talk more about that. So he, he Paul Trigardis, now believing that his life is merely a dream or something, continues to stare into the crystal like night. Well, he, he tries well, he to he tries not it. to. Yeah, but he can't. And he keeps doing it like three days in a row. He'll be like, not going to do it, not going to do it. Yeah. Oh, this is so nice. It's like it's like he's got basically got an addiction. Yeah. It seems like a, a yeah, classic well, trying to quit the first day. The worlds in the crystal feel more real than his regular life, so why not? If re- yeah. if the real world feels like a dream and then the crystal feels like the real world. Is this how you guys feel when you play Skyrim? Be 100% honest. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. I mean <laughs> Just just some days. <laughs> Are video games actually this crystal? Oh, I possibly. wish they were. This, <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. This is the part where it makes me think, among other Lovecraftian tales, of Celephus. It's the one with Karanis, where he dreams of... He keeps dreaming of this... Uh, trying to approach into this city, and he keeps coming closer and closer, yeah, and he's trying to right. chase it in dreams, and he takes drugs to chase it, and eventually, finally, he goes into it, and he's actually... He's in it, and he's riding through it, and it's fantastic, and he, he, everything is good, and he becomes like the king, and it's just a good ending, except that, of course, then the body of a, of a bum washes <laughs> up under a bridge. It's one of my favorite of Lovecraft's Dream Cycle stories. So this is kind of that, getting so lost up, uh, caught up in a fantasy that you're wasting your life, like Skyrim. It's it's but the, the the thing is in both cases they're not necessarily not real right because Karanis is there and Randolph Carter runs into him in yeah. the dream quest later on and he's pretty happy and in this case this guy is actually accessing history mentally but yeah. it, it's real history that was there that he's getting yeah I mean the, into, and they're all, yeah like they're slightly different because also I mean he Trigardis doesn't end up a bum a and b well, yeah. his his fantasy isn't actually very pleasant when we actually get to yeah. what. What happens to him? It's not like he's. It's not like it's a like a you know dream life of Walter Mitty thing where he's yeah. like. It's not. It's not. Uh, he's uh, not a king ruling. Yeah, it's not like a power fantasy. City. It's like yeah. a like a de-evolution fantasy. It also seems like Tregardis isn't really doesn't really have a lot of agency here. It seems like it's all Zom mm-hmm. Mesomalik that he's the one that wants to read the ultra stellar tablets of of the dead gods. And Trigardis is just but you can you can infer some level of agency yeah. just by the nature of Trigardis' personality. True. I mean yeah. he yeah. he has the book of Ibon. He's he has collated it <laughs> right. to That's with true. The with the Necronomicon. <laughs> Absolutely. So clearly he has a desire for what one might consider forbidden knowledge. Right. No, that's um, true. It's just never explicitly stated. Yeah, it's never it's never yeah. really stated, yeah. It, it's almost like his personality is similar to Zan Mazamalek. Right, right. And he gets pulled into that. Yeah. 
but I would say because he has the matching personalities, that's what makes it work. I don't know if it would work as well if it were some random dude off the right. street buying the Who crystal or finding the crystal in his grandfather's attic or yeah. something. Not just anybody picks up Skyrim. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> you have to want it. You got to have a console or a PC. It's not just for Now everybody. you guys are making me want to go play Skyrim after this. <laughs> There was a sense of abysmal falling, a suction as of ineluctable winds, of maelstroms that bore him down through fleet, unstable visions of his own past life into antenatal years and dimensions. He seemed to endure the pangs of an inverse dissolution, and then he was no longer Zon Mesomolik, the wise and learned watcher of the crystal, but an actual part of the weirdly racing stream that ran back to reattain the beginning. He seemed to live unnumbered lives, to die myriad deaths, forgetting each time the death and life that had come before. He fought as a warrior in half-legendary battles. He was a child, playing in the ruins of some olden city of Moon He was the king, who had reigned when the city was in its prime. The prophet, who had foretold its building and its doom. A woman? He wept for the bygone dead and necropoli long crumbled. An antique wizard, he muttered the rude spells of earlier sorcery. A priest of some pre-human god, he wielded the sacrificial knife in cave temples of pillared basalt. Life by life, era by era, he retraced the long and groping cycles through which Hyperborea had risen from savagery to a high civilization. He became a barbarian of some troglodytic tribe, fleeing from the slow, turreted ice of a former glacial age into lands illumined by the ruddy flare of perpetual volcanoes. Then, after incomputable years, he was no longer man, but a man-like beast, roving in forests of giant fern and calamite, or building an uncouth nest in the bowels of mighty cycads. That's awesome. It is awesome. But I wonder, like, did all these people look into that? That's what I'm wondering, too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It seems like they would have had to have some contact with it. Right. They hadn't, like, stared into it. So maybe the... So so Zon Mesolamek must then be existing in, like, late period Hyperborea, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Because he's... Well, he's in Muthulan. So it's before Muthulan succumbs to the ice age but then he also mentions well he mentions a previous ice age in that last mm-hmm. passage well, yeah, but he says he was a child playing in the ruins of some olden city of Muthalon is Muthalon right. a continent or a city? Uh, Muthalon's like an area oh, okay. or yeah an area yeah yeah in Hyperborea um, but the, he does kind of to go back to our future thing uh, it says he seemed to live unnumbered lives to die myriad deaths forgetting each time the death and life that had gone before so Trigardus, there may be people after Trigardus, but Trigardus won't remember them. Wouldn't remember them, yeah. Ooh, weird. Yeah, so people reliving this through him, but but they don't know it. Oh, yeah, I think this part is awesome. Like, it's such a, it is a moment in the story that feels so um, uh, unique. It Like, it feels, again, like like some sort of weird story from like the 60s or 70s like the post acid age yeah this this Mm -hmm. like weird visionary quest that is about like many people 
like I don't know sharing one consciousness but not knowing it and like all times existing in one time and being able to see them like it all feels very like post psychedelic drug age to me like a Phil K. Dick or like an Alan Moore story right. or like something that is much much more modern than 1932 we're all connected um, man yeah exactly yeah it has that kind of like <laughs> new agey sense, sense to it the reincarnation um, idea almost. yeah yeah almost but like it's not even but it's not even as uh as codified as reincarnation it's like weirder mm-hmm. than that right because it's not like it's, it's like, like weird psychic. reverse reincarnation or something it's totally bizarre a monstrous devolution yeah exactly death became birth and birth was death yeah and I like that um, a couple paragraphs later, I, I like that we, we run into he becomes a serpent person. Yeah. Uh-huh. One of the, the lost race of serpent men. And that ties in nicely to when we access them in um, The Double Shadow, when we had accidentally called up one of the things they uh, summoned, worshipped, whatever, not really sure what they were doing with it. But we go into that whole previous civilization, which is apparently in a time before pterodactyls and ichthyosauruses. It's a whole different earth. Yeah, and they have their whole like culture. Like they mm-hmm. they populate the earth. These servant men. It's pretty cool. They have streets and vaults and high Babelian towers and hissing litanies to serpent idols. And they walk undulously in anti-human yes. streets. Wait, does it say anti-human streets? Yeah, anti, anti, oh, okay. not yeah. anti. <laughs> no anti. humans on these streets. <laughs> we don't know what a human is, but if one comes here, they're not allowed. That's my snake man voice. <laughs> That's a good snake man. Voice. I've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he like keeps going back and back and back and back and back. And now, uh, boom! Ugh, I can't do it. Somebody else will will have to do it. Do what? The Describe the Ubosathla. Oh, I like the Ubosathla. <laughs> I'll I'll describe it. Okay. So he runs. Well, finally gets back and comes to Ubosathla, which is a formless mass that reposed amid the slime and the vapors. Headless, without organs or members, it sloughed from its oozy sides in a slow, ceaseless wave, the amoebic forms that were the archetypes of earthly life. Horrible it was, as if there had been aught to apprehend the horror, and loathsome, if there had been anything to feel loathing. About it, prone or tilted in the mire, there lay the mighty tablets of star-quartered stone that were writ with the inconceivable wisdom of the pre-mundane gods. And that's when I start getting all excited because, like the character, I'm a bit of an antiquarian, <laughs> <Right>. too. <laughs> Ugh, so he's like this thing. It actually reminds me of the um, the mother of the Blemfroyums from Ooh, Door of Saturn, yeah. but just like a weird, like a weird, gross... Well, she was pretty gross, too, but... Ubisoft is like the progenitor of everything, uh-huh. and it's just like, uh, it's just sweating out people. <laughs> well, amoebas, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. They're not, yeah, they're not even people. And there, to the goal of a forgotten search, was drawn the thing that had been, or would sometime be, Paul Tregardis in Zon Mesomolic. Becoming a shapeless eft of the prime, it crawled sluggishly and obliviously across the fallen tablets of the gods, and fought and ravened blindly with the other spawn of Ubosafla. Of Zon Mesomolic and his vanishing, there is no mention anywhere save the brief passage in the Book of Ivan. Concerning Paul Tregardis, who also disappeared, there was a curt notice in several of the London papers. 
No one seems to have known anything about him. He is gone as if he had never been, and the crystal presumably is gone too. At least, no one has found it. What's, what's really sad here is that, so he makes it back, he makes it back into the body of one of the things that could read the tablets, and it doesn't have the mental consciousness. Yeah, to no, it's, it's oh, too primitive so, to understand. <laughs> that was such a letdown. Be careful what you wish for. I, I love it, like, it, like it, it, of all of the, I love it because it's like, it, 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 to me, this story has an awesome sense of, like, mankind's misunderstanding of its own abilities like right. i love mm-hmm. the idea that they didn't even think they just assumed they would still be themselves back there they would still uh-huh. have the same desires but of course they don't and like ultimately this is a, a totally unknowable piece of information that they just can't have yeah which i think is kind of cool like it, it's not it is a very like sort of lovecraftian thesis right but it, it mm-hmm. is like filtered through clark ashton smith's kind of slightly different visionary language yeah. and take on it um the uh, cool. the smith escalation effect Mm-hmm. <laughs> where he's escalating his tearing down of reality <laughs> yeah <laughs> um oh yeah so then then and paul Tregardis also disappears yeah right just like zon meselnik did and nobody mentioned anything about the crystal yeah, found yeah. It. no one has found it and they put it into a video game <laughs> uh and called it skyrim <laughs> Uh, I love this story, though. Again, it has this awesome, like, uh, I mean, my my note on it was that it was, like, a weird anti-2001, because instead of, like, mankind evolving, it's just, like, a mm-hmm. uh, a picture of, like, the quest for knowledge actually leading to a person becoming completely devolved yeah. beyond any, like, recognizable consciousness or structure or, or biology, which is pretty cool. See, my takeaway is that this is not going to be a useful archival strategy <laughs> and I should not try to present it as, as a, as a yeah. new and, and breaking way to explore older papers yeah, no. and, and not have to worry about preservation because you just go through the crystal to view it when it was made, but that's not going to work. So if that comes up in any of your library meetings, you're, you're ready, you're prepared. Back to the drawing yeah. board guys. <laughs> it's a fascinating, like, like there's a, I don't know if I can phrase it. There's like a, like a, a heady philosophical like question about desire in this story too, which is like if you if you have to lose who you are to acquire your object of desire, is it worth it? Like I think it's kind of like an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Right? And that's a good question. I probably only Paltergardus knows. <laughs> I could become a wizard from a previous age, yeah, sure. But I wouldn't become a formless spawn. Why not just stop at the wizard, you know? Well, because the wizard had 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 a thing he wanted to do too. But, oh, but if yeah, you become that's a right. wizard, you had to you had to totally cease. You would you would no longer know that you had been Ruth. Like, would it matter? Um, not if I was the wizard. Seriously. <laughs> well, I mean, depends. Cool wizard, maybe not a wizard that got drawn back through time and became a formless thing. Not a stoner wizard who. <laughs> hangs maybe out not Ivan. Oh yeah, that's yeah. the thing I wanted to talk about. That quote of the book of Ivan, yeah. which is like. Cuts back to just how hilarious I think it is that we now know Ibon as a personality, and like him writing this like super serious thing about like the formless spawn and blah 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 blah, and like really he just is like a goofball shyster who ended up on Saturn and, and like didn't want to have sex with a weird crazy 
mother monster. He's so interesting, Ibon. <laughs> it's like the greatest sham in weird fiction, Ibon. Who were you, Ibon? <laughs> <laughs> when we know exactly who he was. <laughs> It's true. Like I was even describing somebody the, the other day, and I was like, "Yeah, he has the this and the this and the Libra bonus." No, wait, <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> yeah. actually have that. Uh, oh, so so this is a question I tend to ask a lot, I guess. But like, what place does Ubosafla have in the greater pantheon of 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 the mythos? Like, does he ever get? Is, does he ever come up, or is this just? Sort of like a one-off that has the book connections to the to the mythos. I'm sure he's come up in expanded like mythos mm-hmm. writings. Um, I don't know. I can't remember if Lovecraft ever wrote anything or mentioned him. I don't know. But he seems kind of like an earthbound Azathoth, like what Azathoth yeah. is for the cosmos. Ubosafla is for specifically Earth. Yeah, I'm trying to find that uh, that thing that somebody did. Was it Mike? did that or somebody put together a cool genealogy of the gods thing and i think i saw Ubis- ah, Lovecraft. oh too. yeah right i think i saw Ubisafla on there yeah i think he was up with the big the big guys like the yeah. outer gods or the elder gods or he has such a uh such a non like so many of lovecraft's gods names have have names that sound specifically malicious mm-hmm. Ubisafla doesn't sound particularly malicious to me i mean he, he's presented as such i guess or he's printed as horrible, horrible it was, it says. But um, he doesn't sound, his name doesn't sound particularly, like Nyarlathotep sounds in his Athoth and Cthulhu. He's all, they, they all sound like mean bastards. Ubisafla, yeah, you know. <laughs> According to the Call of Cthulhu 5th edition role-playing game, he's an outer <laughs> god. Huh. Oh yeah, he and he is in the outer gods of the, the Lovecraft bestiary thing that Mike did. Uh-huh. Which kind of makes sense, I guess. He dwells in a cold, dank cavern and never leaves its lair unless called or disturbed. What do you? What do you? Uh, yeah, I don't buy that. Yeah. What do you? What do you think? <laughs> the that's <laughs> just so mad about that. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, because I don't. I don't buy it. Like, because he sounds like he's huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe ultimately we all are Ubosoft. I think so. I just, think we like, are. Yeah. I think that's one of the weird and slightly terrifying things about the story is that we all evolved from Ubisoft. No! Yeah. I just went insane. It's like the Lovecraftian thing again where all come from monsters or there's some some sort of genetic tie. That's right. Terrible. I don't know if I have anything else to say about Ubisoft, except that I do really like the name Paul Tregardis. (laughs) I think Tregardis is an awesome last name. And this is one of my randomly favorite stories. Yeah, it's good. It's not like it's not like the big long ones, like you know, Empire of the Necromancers or something. But it's a it's a wonderful little vignette story. Oh, you know, actually, I, I did have one other thing I was going to say, which is that I think it's super smart of him to not just make it a hyperboreal story. Like, I think it's awesome mm-hmm. that he like had that thought where it wasn't just a Zon Mesolomex story. He was like, oh, I'm going to set this in the present day, and which seems to be, sort of be this almost like a a way to. I don't know. Like it just makes the story so much weirder that it that it he connected it directly to his his present day. Because you could, I mean, you could easily have written it just from Zon Mesolomex's perspective, right? Uh huh. But then it would have been so much like the other wizard stories, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I like Smith trying to write like contemporary. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> like it's so. I want to say bad. Just, <laughs> just some. I don't of the... think it's bad. What are you talking about? Bad. Like okay, here's bad. here's some things. 
like when okay, he does, tell us some things, when he too. like restricts himself from being like flowery and like poetical, mm-hmm. it comes off really like hacky. Like when um okay, so when Paul hastens back to his lodgings instead of resuming his leisurely saunter, like what? And then when he when he pulls the book of Ibon down from wherever it is, he's like smiling at his own absurdity. Like he. <laughs> I don't know. There's just I like it. And the the dealer giving an indescribable simultaneous shrug of his shoulders and eyebrows. What does that mean? Well, yeah, but I don't know that that I don't think that's specific to the present to him writing present day. I feel like we could find strange I guess so. Uh, right. Let's call them hacky flourishes <laughs> in, other, in other stories as well. Um I think this like I I like the story also as like a as because of that quote because it is sort of like you could you could take this story and use it as a like interpretation tool for so many of his other stories yeah. because it has mm-hmm. like even even the one we're gonna do next, White Sybil, and uh, like it has the, the same. It has like the quintessential Clark Ashton Smithian quest, which is like you become enchanted with a time that is lost uh, mm-hmm. or like a an object that is unattainable, yeah. and then you become you like go on this crazy quest. That is that is more visionary than anything else, and it ends up like you disappear or you die yeah. or you're you don't often, you don't, by you, it. Yeah, you don't often go insane, uh, but you do. You, you kind of like it, to the ruination of who you are. Yeah. You get you get lost in it, you know. Hmm. Um, which is kind of like like so many stories of his have that same thing, which is which isn't bad. It's sort of fun to watch him iterate on the uh, on yeah. this idea. But I, I like the story. I think it's cool. I, like I said, I, I like the stories of his that feel oddly modern and i think this one feels very well maybe not modern but like post 1960s yeah you know? mm-hmm. um which this one definitely does thanks again to jordan smith for doing our readings on this story next time we'll be doing the white sybil i don't really there's not really a dent of that seemed to live unnumbered lives, forgetting each time the death and life that had gone before. He fought as a warrior in half-legendary battles. He was a child playing in the ruins of some olden city of Muthulan. He was the king who had reigned when the city was in its prime. The prophet who had foretold its building and its doom. A woman who wept for the bygone dead in Necropoli long crumbled. An antique wizard, he muttered the rude spells of earlier sorcery. A priest of some brave and gold, he wielded the sacrificial knife in cave temples of pillowed basalt. Life by life, error by error, he retraced the long and groping cycles through which Hyperborea had risen from savagery to high civilization.